This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Well, 2021's almost gone, but not forgotten, though it would be nice to be able to forget large parts of it. But before we flip into 2022, here's the Media Watch Christmas bonus, looking back at what's coming up next year, and some more acknowledgement of some of the stuff in the media in the year gone by, which was outstanding one way or another. But look, New Zealand's got 90% of the country vaccinated. That's why the numbers of people that have COVID each day is going down. That's what vaccination has done. They've well, reduced... Um, we don't know that for sure. Um, we have... Um, yeah, I, I, absolutely do, I, absolutely, I absolutely do know for sure. That was News Talk ZB's Nights host, Marcus Lush, arguing with caller Lena the day before the Omicron variant was first detected here last week. But Marcus Lush decided against arguing the toss with her. So, Lena, I'm not going to get... It's too close to Christmas to get involved with a shouter. I'm not going to do it, Lena. I can't be bothered. I'm sorry, but I can't be bothered. And earlier in the day, the ZB morning host Kerry McIver was also singling out COVID callers that she'd clashed with on air the day before. The vast majority of people who get COVID won't need to go to hospital, let alone need an ICU bed. Are we all going to take a chill pill now, Janines and Jans around the country? But if you heard her alarming encounter with Janine the previous day, you wouldn't think it was Janine that needed the chill pill. So they're not taking up all the beds, Janine? Well, they've been taking up a lot in the past. No, they haven't. You're full of it. And I really fear for you. I, I, I want to be angry with you, but I just feel sorry for you that you need a government to look after you. You sad, pathetic creature. Unpleasant stuff unbecoming of a radio host, really. But having relitigated her cranky exchange with Janine the next day, Kerry McIver finished up with this thought. And thank you to Andrew Little for spelling it out so directly, and yay to this government for putting some money into the hospitals long overdue, desperately needed, should have been done earlier, should have been more, but let's not quibble, it's Christmas. Well, now Christmas has come, and it's been a long, tough year for many, especially Aucklanders like her. And hopefully Kerry McIver will be unwinding now, because she was pretty wound up there. And time off from quibbling about COVID will probably be good for everybody. Now, the COVID response was a hot topic all year in the media, and it's often been described as one that divides our society, even though most people have backed the COVID response, and the vast majority have embraced the vaccine. But an issue that really divided the country and set talkback hosts into a spittle-flecked frenzy in 2021 was cyclists. Back in June, when they stormed the Auckland Harbour Bridge, Kerry McIver also saw them, like caller Janine, as little creatures, though threatening rather than pathetic. There were hundreds of them. Like, they weren't just little family groups. Uh, there were, well, what seemed like thousands of the hooers coming from everywhere. If you've seen the mice in Australia, you know, the hordes of mice sweeping through the farms, if you can imagine mice in lycra and on bikes, that's what they looked like. The swarm of them heading towards the park from every street and every road. Rats in lycra, she called them too, and gits, tits and hooers, as well as rodents and entitled freeloaders. And she also condemned them as rich, snobby hypocrites because some of them own suburban houses and cars. But was she really that uptight about people on bikes? Probably not. But racking people up, especially drivers, and animating their resentments is business as usual on the daily 
teeth-grinding grind of talkback. Engagement is the fancy media word for that, and every now and then it goes a bit far, like it did with Call It Janine, when it strikes even the people who tune in day after day to talk radio as a bit weird. So, this year, Kerry McIver is the winner of... The Media Watch Award for Performative Outrage in 2021. But don't expect the crankiness to dial down in 2022. Next year, News Talk ZB will have some more competition on the radio in the form of a new network, or at least one with a new name. Today FM launches in the new year with some well-known broadcasters at the mic who will be trying to eat News Talk ZB's breakfast, lunch and drive time. We'll see how that goes. But launching a new network is tricky. The last one to jump into the market here was the sports radio network SENZ, filling the void left by Radio Sport in July last year. SENZ went on air nationwide just before the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, which took place in July 2021, during which newbie host Stephen Beaver Donald had to remind himself he was actually on the radio and not TV. Tell you what's dramatic. It is very dramatic, mate. It's great. Again, we can't say great viewing because... Our poor listeners aren't, aren't watching this, but uh, we can assure you that the New Zealanders, Great Britain and German teams are just swapping the le- lead. But things do go wrong from time to time on a brand new network. And proving things that can go wrong for one almost all the time was GB News, backed by Brexiteers and billionaires in the UK, with respected media executive Andrew Neil at the helm. It launched in June, promising to challenge mainstream media conversation and elites, and here's what Andrew Neil promised on his own show. We'll do a main interview if we can get one. Not, we won't do an interview if it's only the Minister for Paperclips. Uh, and uh, I want to do Media Watch, including a Media Watch that holds ourselves to account. I think when we get things wrong, we've got to put our hands up and say we got this wrong. But also hold other media to account as well. And sorry if that clip was a little hard to hear, but that was one key problem with GB News. It was also so poorly lit and designed that one critic said of Andrew Neil's show, why are they broadcasting an angry orange puppet shouting from inside an echoey shipping crate? In spite of that sexy-sounding segment called Media Watch, Andrew Neil and his evening show vanished from GB News within three weeks. He later quit calling the whole thing the biggest mistake of his career. And GB News replaced him with Mr Brexit, Nigel Farage, in a desperate bid for more viewers. His biggest contribution so far to a channel professing to give a voice to ordinary Britons overlooked by their elite mainstream media? Yesterday, I did go to Mar-a-Lago. I sat down for half an hour with the 45th president of the USA, Donald J. Trump. Um, And I think we covered a lot of areas. It's a very wide-ranging interview, Um, some really interesting points. And as ever, Donald Trump doesn't hold back. He tells you what he thinks. Well, Trump thinks he won the election last year and he doesn't think much of Meghan Markle, but fewer than 200,000 UK viewers tuned in to watch that heavily hyped exclusive last week to hear him say it all again, and hardly any were still watching when the two-hour special lumbered to an end. Sad. And that's even though a former Kiwi editor from the Murdoch tabloid Empire, who broke last year's scoop about Meghan Markle dumping the royals, tried so hard to big up the big Trump chat. Coming up Wednesday on a special edition of Dan Wooten Tonight, GB News star Nigel Farage will be here to break down the bombshell revelations from his world-exclusive interview with Donald Trump. And he'll reveal all the secrets from behind the scenes at Mar-a-Lago. Dan Wooten Tonight, airing 9pm till 11pm Monday to Thursday on GB News.
So many hosts have now quit GB News since June that Dan's almost the last man standing from the original lineup. Rumours that the current one is now known as the Wu-Tong Clan have been denied. But GB News is not Media Watch's pick as the most wretched media launch of 2021. We're giving that to this guy. Whoa, we're floating in space? Uh-huh. Who made this place? It's awesome. <laughs> right? It's from a crater I met in L.A. Uh, this place is amazing. <laughs> Boz, is that you? Of course it's me. You know I had to be the robot, man. I thought I was supposed to be the robot. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg, who some people already reckon might be a robot, last month unveiling the metaverse he's building over the next five years. Now, for his Netflix review of last year, Death to 2020, arch-media satirist Charlie Brooker created a fictitious and ludicrously unself-aware tech billionaire sitting out COVID in a Kiwi bunker. I realised our whole world could collapse into chaos and disaster, and here's me, one of the richest people on the planet, in a position to actually do something about it. As soon as she finished speaking, I hit the phone, got my people to buy a mountain in New Zealand, had it hollered out... And here we are, in my survival bunker. Don't people call you selfish? I don't know, it's soundproof. And Brooker chose the name Bark Multiverse for that character, just for laughs, but Mark Zuckerberg is clearly deadly serious about his virtual metaverse. In late January, our COVID-free summer came to an end with a community case in Northland, and news of that breaking on News Talk ZB1 Sunday takes the Media Watch Award for... most unorthodox breaking news announcement of 2021. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, I love when this happens. This, When you're actually sitting here in a radio studio and something breaks, it's just like, it's just, especially if it's news, Prince, give me the sting. This is News Talk ZB, breaking news. And I get to read it and pretend that I'm into, it's a kind of news guy. In all seriousness, stop what you're doing for a second. Health officials are responding to what is believed to be a probable new case of community transmission of CV-19 in Northland. In the capital, though, things were still blissfully COVID-free back then, but there were plenty of other problems for the local paper and the crumbliest little capital to report. Munted buildings, bursting pipes and surges of sewage through the streets. But last January, the Dominion Post made the news itself briefly after publishing a piece by US-based PR professional Brian Sweeney. Most cities in the world are facing economic infrastructure issues, he wrote airily, but he said he designed emotional infrastructure. Marketing is not cheerleading or junk science, he wrote. It's what communicates ideas. And it pays pretty well too. Dom Post reporter Tom Hunt revealed that Brian Sweeney got 12 grand from the city's booster agency Wellington NZ for those 600 words urging citizens to get absolutely positively consequential promoting their city, which stuff then pulled from its website because paid-for pieces like that actually breach its new editorial charter. Now for this, Tom Hunt deserves an award for the ever-tricky task of holding your own outlet to account, but he was shaded in that by another individual who we'll hear about later. But the sticking to your guns in PR award should go to Wellington NZ because as the year closes, it's still spending citizens' money persuading people that the capital is cool and creative. Kia ora, I'm Jahan Kasanada and welcome to Imagine This, a podcast about creative people bringing their wildest dreams to life right here in Wellington. 
Well, in fact, the wildest dream in life for some in Wellington is actually a home to live in, either to rent or buy. They're not fussy. But there's fewer of both now because so many are owned by fewer people. And just like elsewhere in the country, some of them seem determined not to allow any more to be built. And those were the people providing a standout media image of 2021. The NIMBY formula photo. Pictures of people with folded arms and an angry stare that says, not in my backyard, or across my road, or down the street, or several streets, or even the side of the nearest golf course. Now this is not unique to Aotearoa. Toronto in Canada, for example, has an online resource called people with their arms crossed in front of things they're against. But unlike affordable or even available housing, these images are spreading thick and fast in the media. Back in August, award-winning photographer Brett Fibbs told Media Watch's Hayden Donnell the secret of the NIMBY photo formula. Key elements are a person standing, usually in the foreground with their arms crossed, with some information that's in the story um, in the background. It's usually a resident disgruntled about something, whether it's a cycleway or some unit going up in a, uh, in a private uh, neighbourhood. Have you taken yeah. one of these photos yourself? Definitely not. No, of course I have. No, every photographer, I'm sure, in their um, career has taken a few of these photographs. Sometimes it happens naturally and sometimes it is prompted. I try not to nowadays, but sometimes you can't help it. Is reform needed in this area? What are some alternatives? Be more creative with the lighting, you know, put them in, in a situation where they can either lean on something or like a fence or stand there. Or, you can do a number of things. What about a scream? Like an angry scream? No. I've got some other suggestions. The fingers? Two or one. Either. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you probably wouldn't get it published, but, you know, that's a good idea, actually. I like that one. What else expresses anger? Is this the problem, that we just don't Point. have enough ways to express anger non-verbally in a still photo? Exactly, you can't. And some people some people don't look like they're angry. They kind of have this kind of face that smiles all the time, so that's problematic as it goes too. I suppose a folding of the arms and look angry, that's the kind of package. If you were advising your best friend they want to be angry about something in a still photo and you want to advise them how not to look stupid, what would you tell them to do? Don't fold your arms. Just squint? Just squint. Look intense. Lean on something. Put your hands in front of you, nice cash kind of lean, and the photographer will do the, do the rest. Thank you so much for your time, Brett. No problem. Well, earlier we heard about MediaWorks launching a new talk radio station in early 2022. And in the new year, we'll also finally find out if there will be a new big state-owned unit in the market for people's ears and eyeballs in the future. Cabinet will be considering a plan for a new public media entity to replace TVNZ and RNZ by 2023. But the public have had no say in that or even any knowledge of what's actually been proposed. The plan has been drafted by a group of business consultants, the third group engaged for that purpose, and it's been signed off by an eight-strong, strong public media business case governance group. And back in October, one of those, TV producer Bailey Mackey, told me that the business case is ready. Uh, that's now in the hands of the gods, I guess. <laughs> Okay, so the minister's got it and where he can take it to Cabinet and then we find out the rest. That is the case. And can you tell us much about the structure of what's proposing to uh, uh, take us into the future? Look, I, I, I'm 
I've got to try and figure out what is on public record and what isn't on public record, sorry. Well, almost nothing is on the public record about the future shape of public media. So, the government's strong public media programme, run by Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy and a growing band of civil servants, wins the Media Watch Award for... Obsessive Media Secrecy in 2021 into 2022. Now, both state-owned broadcasters are saying nothing either, including TVNZ, which has an unknown future, unknown at least outside the government and the insiders of its strong public media programme. It's also unknown what kind of budget any new public media entity will have, but in 2021 the government began splashing the cash for content around the media from its public interest journalism fund of $55 million. Now, the opposition didn't approve. Former leader Judith Collins asked this question once the fund was up and running. You know, you have to wonder, does that buy compliance or what? Um, and if it doesn't buy compliance, then why is part of that? Are there conditions in that that says that you've got to be seen to be promoting the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi? What the hell has this got to do with it? And even before a cent was spent from the Public Interest Journalism Fund, her broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee was asking the publicly owned broadcasters' bosses if they would be scratching the back of the government and the hand that feeds them rather than holding their feet to the fire. So the question was if a minister or the prime minister threatened to actually pull your public interest journalism funding, would you run the story is the question. 100%. The amount of funding we get is around a drinks. <laughs> Thanks for that question. Now, opposition politicians weren't the only ones raising questions about more of the media becoming increasingly dependent on public money and government willingness to send some of it in their direction. Hal Crawford was the news chief at MediaWorks till February last year and towards the end of his time there, he argued, quite emotionally, that the New Zealand news business was broken and undermined by a dominant state sector that was being bolstered by the government. But in the interests of democracy, he said, the government did have to, in his words, keep this lemon on the road. Well, Hal Crawford is now a media consultant in Australia who's being consulted by the government on what to do for our media. And earlier this month, he was appointed as the chair of an advisory panel to ensure that the Public Interest Journalism Fund remains fit for purpose. So recently I asked Hal Crawford about that, the prospect of a new public media entity, and if he still felt that news in New Zealand was in need of repair. Interesting to contemplate the emotional tone of that piece, actually. Uh, it certainly sounds like a, uh, a missive from, from the uh, trenches, uh, which is what it was. Uh, I think that they Well, the whole company at that point was leaning on the government, right? You had your own chief executive, your own on-air talent, and people like Duncan Garner pretty much telling yeah. the government to get involved and sort it out. The government actually have now. They are pumping money into into the, the media in a way they haven't before, at least supporting yeah. journalism at a bigger range of, of providers. So um, effectively, yeah. did you get what you wanted it, it, before you quit? I'll, I'll tell you, I got what I wanted because the because the TV part of MediaWorks was sold to Discovery. And, uh, you know, before that happened, there were people saying that uh, they couldn't imagine how, how that could possibly happen. And, uh, and I was always... A true believer, and I thought, no, this is a this is a great business with very very solid um, bases, and uh, the sale to Discovery sort of um, proved that point. Um, and yeah, for me, I was certainly very happy about that. I still think that there were there are you know the things that I was um, having a whinge about in that piece were that TVNZ was government owned. 
um, but it was a commercial player. Now that is remains an extremely bizarre situation uh, where you you you're a government and you entitle you're the only shareholder of a commercial broadcasting company. Weird, right? And to me, if I look at it in a more positive lens, it's a missed opportunity because RNZ uh, is the public broadcaster in New Zealand. It hasn't been a full-spectrum public broadcaster in the past. It, ha- it, it hasn't come from TV roots. If you merged it with this strangely um, government-owned commercial broadcaster, there is a potential to create a full-spectrum public broadcaster that moves beyond public broadcaster to become public media in New Zealand, you know, full stop. Now, that comes with its own problems and difficulties, of course, as I'm sure everyone has discovered. But the opportunity, the prize is massive. It's this sort of uh, opportunity to create a cultural monolith like the BBC or the ABC in Australia that endures for decades and adds real value to the spirit of New Zealand. But do you think that's why our government might be doing this, trying to create a big public monolith, as you called it, because they actually see that 10 years down the track, other media could be you know, ideologically opposed, competing, a lot of noise, and perhaps not a reliable or largely neutral, mostly neutral source of news and information for the entire nation? Yeah, I don't, I don't think the government is doing it because they, they feel a need to counter some sort of uh, future state of... Uh, media extremism. I think that um, there's probably a few things bound up in it. One is this really big opportunity. It's a prize. There's a there's a prize there, and the prize is a a a, a wonderful public broadcaster that um, represents New Zealand and and can do everything and and basically is the catch-up video service of, a, of New Zealand. That, that's important too, I think. That's the positive side. And the sort of the more negative side is the market failure in the provision of public interest journalism. And this is a, this is a well-known fact of the modern world. It's almost impossible to finance public interest journalism news um, based on display advertising. You know, if subscriptions and contributions aren't going to get you as much news as you need to run your democracy, you need a solution. And um, one of the solutions might be something like the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which has been set up and administered by New Zealand On Air. And another might be to make sure that your, your public media entity is fit for purpose. Well, the government here is injecting more money into the public interest journalism, as you said there. In the end, though, it's only for three years as the horizon of the project. Do you think it creates an unhealthy dependence on uh, public money for that kind of work? I, certainly the very limited time that the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which, by the way, is pretty unprecedented throughout the world. You know, I, I'm not sure many Kiwis are aware just how unusual this sort of thing would be in a global sense. Uh, and the reason is that no one else has New Zealand on air that could independently distribute this funding to commercial news companies. But the funding could dry up and, if the government changes, right? The opposition do not support that's it. it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, everyone's hyper aware of that. It's very much a limited time. It's very much a let's see what we can do. 
the quantum of the money isn't sufficient to um, actually create a dependency. It's an experiment in how to fund public interest journalism outside of public broadcasting. All the indications I have at the moment are that it's working. Well, there's also noise from people who believe that public funding of journalism compromises the independence of media. Some of it is slightly, you know, paranoid type thinking about um, the media being bought by government and so on. But there are journalists also who point to this and say, actually, look, for years, newspaper publishers had nothing to do with the government. That that usually comes from people who are... I, I don't want to disparage... I actually don't want to disparage anyone. Um, but do, do, do news however, executives have to take this seriously, that there will be people who whose trust in media is undermined if they think that it is a kind of government project. Um, well, well, put it this way. Uh, are New Zealanders um, distrusting of RNZ because it's funded 100% by the government? The answer is no. In fact, it has one of the highest trust scores of all. And then the same is true in, in Australia. The, the most trusted media outlet is 100% financed by the government, the ABC. But that's because they're bulk so, funded one way or another, um, both those outlets you talk about. Yeah. They're fully accountable for the X millions, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in Australia that, that they get, where it's, where it's contestable, where it's commercial companies using this to top up their high-end journalism. It's, that's a different story. You make a great point. In fact, are, are they being influenced by the government? And the answer is no. Even if it wasn't going through an independent agency, New Zealand on air, my belief is that it is these companies are not constitutionally inclined to be influenced by the government. However, even if that wasn't the case, we have the situation where New Zealand On Air is distributing the money. They have been an independent agency since 1989, distributing millions of um, dollars all, all over the joint. Is the, is the money influencing coverage in a way favourable to the government? Absolutely not. Well, there's another source of uh, funding for journalism in Australia. That's the likes of Google and Facebook because the Australian government took a a stance on that. But you're actually a local advisor on New Zealand journalism for uh, Meta. Well, should New Zealand, though, and the government here and indeed our media companies be trying to follow the Australian example because substantial, though uh, unknown amounts of money have been passed on and, and deals that have been struck between them because the government acted and threatened to change the law. I mean, should New Zealand media and government actually target the likes of Google and Facebook as a, a source of income in the same way as, as happened in Australia? I don't think New Zealand should go down the Australian path. I'm not against money flowing from... I, I am very pro the idea of uh, somehow um, transparently creating a levy on the digital um, giants. So Facebook and Google, you know, and also shouldn't exclude other people, but um, they should be paying more and contributing more to the societies in which they operate. But why not hypothecate it to news? I mean, they carry, they distribute the news, news outlets dependent on Facebook to get the news. Well, we were just talking about unhealthy influence, and uh, I think that you can see in a situation where there's absolutely no transparency uh, about how the money is flowing and why the money is flowing and what's it for, Um, there's an opportunity for some sort of um, distortion or corruption of uh, what those media companies are are publishing, in particular about the, the, the digital platforms. The important thing to know about the Australian situation and why I don't think it's a good precedent is that 
legislation has been created as a threat that forces Google and Facebook to do deals with news companies, deals that they would never do uh, if normal commercial rules just applied. And, um, you know, people will say, oh, that's because they're monopolies. And that could be true or it might not be true. It, it might be that the value that the news companies uh, put on their content is inflated from a point of view of a, of a digital platform. Um, in Australia at the moment, the little publishers cannot get deals with Google and Facebook. So New Zealand should not set up a system like that. Um, New Zealand should do it properly and uh, investigate what the uh, correct basis for an, an increased payment from um, Google and Facebook to consolidated revenue should be, and then that money should be distributed um, by the government, not in weird shadowy deals that we don't know anything about. Interesting. Well, Hal, finally, just to take it back to where we began, uh, if you say that we're likely to see a kind of ideological drift in, in media that possibly mirrors uh, what goes on in, in your home country, Australia, and if, if that happens, if our media st landscape starts to look more like yours in Australia, is one reason for that Australians like you who have worked in our media because uh, you're now advising <laughs> New Zealand on air, you're advising Facebook. We have Michael Anderson, your former boss at MediaWorks, another Australian executive. He's on the strong public oh, media yeah. governance group. Andrew Hunter, your former colleague at the Share Wars Project and co-author of a books with you back in the day. He's now Australia New Zealand uh, news partnerships boss for Facebook. I mean, Australians are shaping our media landscape now, aren't they? <laughs> Isn't it like lizards? Um, yeah, no. Um, what day of the week Australia, do you all meet? I want to the, know. The, Austra the Australian influence. That's that's interesting. I'd never contemplated it like that because you're, you're, New Zealanders are such a bunch of independent... Um, uh, what's the word? It's... It's not active hostility towards Australians, but there's uh, <laughs> there, there, there's something there. Um, so no, I don't think you're in danger of, of of an Australian takeover. One one thing that I I mean antipathy uh, we could call it. Let's let's face it, Colin. I, I think um, I'm one one thing you may be very surprised about is that people ask me where I'm from. Uh, in when I'm in, when I'm in Sydney, they're like, so where are you from? Are you are you a Kiwi? I'm like, you're joking, right? I'm not a Kiwi. Um, I've been incredibly influenced by my time in New Zealand media and um, most of that in really positively. So uh, a lot of the things that I see happening in New Zealand are great precedents for what could happen in Australia. Um, unfortunately, there's a there's a degree of ignorance in Australia about New Zealand media. and But, but, but we have Australian media yeah. executives in their time here always complaining that the market was too fragmented. We need consolidation and there's too much government uh, and state influence on, on particularly broadcasting as well. Um, it's, it strikes me yeah. that Australian execs working here have never been happy with the, the scope and scale and number of players in our media market. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing to get your head around when you're an Australian is, is the size of the market. It's quite small, you know. It's um, smaller than um, Sydney in, in terms of population. And yet in, in this space of, of people, with we, we pack a huge amount of um, media companies and diversity. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of those people who think that's a good thing. You know, I'd like to see um, some differences in New Zealand media, but the 
the, the, they're all positive possibilities. What a real positive possibility is is what we're talking about with the stronger public media stuff around RNZ and TVNZ. Another thing that should happen is that training should be sorted out, training of journalists. Uh, and you know, there, you put it this way, Colin: you can do things in New Zealand media that you can't do in Australian media. I'm not sure why but um, the, the possibilities for innovation are greater, I believe. That was Hal Crawford, a former news chief at MediaWorks, who's now a media consultant in Australia, who, as we heard there, has been consulted about the funding of public media here and was this month appointed as the chair of a panel that's overseeing the government's public interest journalism fund. Well, that's it from MediaWatch for this year, but MediaWatch will be back next year in late January. Till then, though, Happy New Year.